This episode is brought to you by Content Multiplied. It's not a secret anymore that content creation is really important, but very few people talk about the importance of consistency. And I myself have really struggled with that consistency. And for that reason, I looked for a solution and uh, Content Multiplied was a really good one for me. Since using them, I've been able to focus on what I enjoy the most, which is recording podcasts, while Myla and her team are really taking care of everything else. Whether you have a podcast, you're holding keynote speeches, you're doing a YouTube series, you're writing a blog, a newsletter, a book, the Content Multiplied team can really take whatever you're producing and repurpose it into a series of micro-content and suddenly you have dozens and dozens of pieces that can be shared for you and Content Multiplied even takes care of that for you. Unlock your content superpower with Content Multiplied and go to contentmultiplied.com today. That's contentmultiplied.com. Thanks, Myla, and uh, let's go into the show. host, Michael Schaffert. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Iggy Bassi, founder and CEO of Servest, a climate intelligence platform helping businesses, governments, and land managers to adapt to extreme climate events. The platform helps customers understand the climate risks that their assets are facing and take action accordingly. And I'm really excited to dive into that topic with Iggy. Uh, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, pleasure to be here. Taking the time. Um, so first question for me is around your personal motivation, personal story. Uh, what, uh, you know, tell us a bit about your life or career and what led you to actually work on this problem. Oh, absolutely. So uh, life started in investment banking for me um, way back in the 90s, actually. Um, I started in um, technology M&A, uh, did that for a couple of years. Then I did some strategy consulting. I actually had the software bug in the late 90s and um, set up my first software company, which was looking at sort of data matching over sort of complex networks. Um, did that for a couple of years. Then uh, we had the telecoms crash. So I ended up working for my investors. Uh, they brought whatever was left of my company. And um, I ended up um, running a uh, U.S. software company in Europe, uh, looking at things like automation, business processes, um, workflow processes. Then I went back to Strat, Strat Consulting, and then one day we had the pleasure of working for a large foundation. Uh, we were looking at how do we create business models for people at the base of the pyramid, something that you know about. And can we develop low-cost business models which could effectively help people, particularly around the areas of agriculture, sanitation, micro-lending? Um, 
And on the back of that, I was really fascinated by this um, intersection between agriculture, food security, and markets. Um, so I decided to commercialize some of that research um, on behalf of one of my clients and set up my company called GADCO, which is really looking at can we bring scalable and sustainable agriculture to West Africa? Um, and that was quite a journey, Michael. It, was, it took about six years in total. Uh, we raised a fair bit of capital for that business. And and that really gave me the genesis of what is now Savest, because uh, during that last business, we saw an awful lot of, um, if you like, sort of natural events happen, uh, catastrophes happen on the farm. But it also taught me a couple of things. How do you get a better signal and how do you get an earlier signal so we can use some of that data in a more predictive format that, to help me plan on the farm better? We lost a, um, a fair bit of CapEx. It, it wasn't just a biological harvest that we lost. We also lost um, CapEx. Um, so when I saw that business in 2015, I said, how do we get that early signal? Um, how do I bring together mathematicians to help me calculate? How do I find out something early? And working in farming also taught me it's not a single risk that matters like flooding or heat. It's a combination of different risks. So can we mathematically tie together lots of different hazards in a cohesive mathematical way that would allow someone to say, this is how you should think about your assets, or in sort of my case, farming and food processing, in a way that allows you to understand some of the risks early. So you can build better, for instance, like I would have built a different foundation for my mill had I known some of these events were going to happen, for instance. So we, we what we've kind of realized in 2016-17 um, through our research is Actually, we can we can form a very good picture of what is likely to happen across multiple hazards. And in 2017, 18 and 19, we said, well, what does that mean from a business point of view? And how do we enshrine some of that thinking into um, some of our analytics to, to basically help other companies think about that? So my journey here has been long, um, but there's always been a theme around, you know, creating businesses which had some impact. I was very keen on this cross-section of if you are going to work very hard in businesses, can you also bring about change and change at scale as well? Got it. Um, yeah, let's dive actually deeper into what you're working on now and what Savest does. So give us an overview of what Savest does. You already touched on some of the problem spaces you're, you're working on, but uh, and how does it actually work? Sure. So the early years were very much focused on looking at research. Is there enough what we call signal in the data in these various physics models? Can we apply machine learning in ways that could really tell me what's going to happen at an asset level rather than a general view of climate? I want to take it down so Michael can understand what's going to happen to his asset. Now, that asset could be a factory. It could be a real estate. It could be a collection of real estate assets. It, it could be forestry over time. So in many ways, different assets diff just mean different things to different folks. But by taking it down to asset level, we're saying, actually, can we personalize climate risk? So Michael knows exactly what to do, when to do it. And also, he has better predictive capabilities to know the sort of timing, magnitude, uh, the location of certain risks, where his assets may be, or where he may have a dependency on other assets. For instance, it may, it may not just be ownership. It may be dependence on some very critical components from different parts of the world. Being able to understand physical climate risk there as well should help you in your planning in your business as well. So in 2000 and I guess 18, 19, we started building the platform out, having done some of that initial research. I mean, we still continue to do research. We think it's fairly fundamental to how we think about multivariate risk. 
And then, so we started building a digital platform where we collected many, many millions of assets, and we could apply that mathematical formula to look at single hazard risk and multivariate hazard risk um, in a mathematically coherent way. So we've been working, I guess, for the last um, year or so on onboarding the initial wave of customers. So they can come on, they can build their portfolio of what's happening to their assets, and they can find out both the past, present, and future state in terms of climate risk across a number of hazards like flooding, uh, forest fire, wind, excessive heats, cold snaps, in ways that they haven't been able to look at before, and in areas and geographies that they haven't been able to look at before as well. Now, this also coincides with um, the emergence of disclosure laws. Like so, as you know, disclosure is becoming a key part of how markets want you to quantify this climate risk as well. So we've had a wave of TCFD. We've had the European standards. We now have the SEC standard, which is which sort of may become law soon. So all of a sudden, large enterprises have been really tasked with this um, new muscle that they've never had before because they've never really understood climate. They don't really have climate departments. They don't have climate MBAs. They don't really have climate scientists. They have been tasked with understanding this problem of climate in a way that would allow others to understand, well, how much risk am I carrying in that security? How much risk does company X carry versus company B, for instance, right? So that becomes... Um, something that the market's really looking for. How do we quantify at scale, but how do we do it persistently so that we can really in, really incorporate the latest climate science as and when it comes out across multiple hazards and multiple geographies so people can make better decisions. Uh, they could ask questions like, you know, which of my assets are likely to be flooded? What can I do early to those assets? Um, which of my suppliers are most critical from a um, heat, um, excessive heat? We've just had a couple of clients, for instance, in um, Europe, one in particular in Germany. They calculated that the average number of heat days is likely to change. So they've already made preemptive investments in their HVAC systems, for instance. Um, we've had other um, clients in the States who are looking at this from a locational planning point of view. Where do I roll up my CapEx? Right? Where do I put my critical factories? So by understanding not just asset level risk, but also locational risk, they can make more informed decisions because the banks and insurance companies and the regulators and the city planners all need to get a little bit smarter on where do we put assets? Why do we put them there? And what's the probability of something happening to those assets, which which could be detrimental? Hmm. Give us a bit more of an understanding uh, from from what I hear. It seems like you're covering quite a few customer segments and use cases and types of assets, etc. You're kind of covering quite a broad spectrum. But is there like any use cases and customers that tend to be like prominent at the moment, like the most common types of use cases where they tap into service to inform the decision making? Yeah, I would say most of the customers are coming on today are coming on because they want to understand these emerging disclosure laws, um, both on disclosure, but also they want to understand uh, their supply chain risk. Those are the two areas where we're seeing most of the most of the interest. Disclosure, because the new mandatory pressure or emerging um, sort of voluntary standards in um, some countries. So they need to understand what does that mean for me, for my assets? How do I quantify that? How do I report that on a regular basis? How do I even understand this? So in many ways, a lot of them who are coming on, they're taking what we say their climate journey for the very first time. So there's a lot of handholding. Uh, so it's not a product that you can just plug and play easily because the need, it needs interpretation. So luckily for us, we've had a couple of iterations of products since the early customers have come on. 
that's allowed us to automate more and more. But also, it's the way people interpret um, climate data and climate scores and climate ratings and you know quantitative maps. Um, so we've had to simplify that, Michael. I think uh, we made some assumptions in the early days that people should be able to interpret this data. But actually, if you think about um, a large enterprise, all the different areas of, of, of the modern enterprise that need to use climate intelligence in different parts of the enterprise, you have to create a common denominator which can travel across multiple departments. And there's a common understanding of what does this risk mean for different departments. So that's been a challenge. Um, but it's, it's a challenge that we worked with closely with our customers. So they ended up co-designing some of the front end in terms of what should it look like, what should it say, and what shouldn't it say. Like if you want deeper quantification, then we can give you that separately. But there has to be – because I think people do freeze up when they see statistical tables and formulas and whatnot. So we we kind of we, – we avoid that at all costs, basically. I'm wondering who are you actually talking to in these companies? Is it very different from company to company? Uh, you know, I assume there's not a chief climate risk officer. Uh, so is it like the CFO? Is it like, uh, I don't know, procurement or like real estate departments? Or who are the people that are actually most commonly concerned with this problem? I would say there's a couple of clusters um, emerging. There's the CFO, the CRO, so the chief risk officer, CFO, I think a lot of the sustainability and the ESG teams have been tasked with understanding how do we look at the risk? How do we think about this? How do we quantify it? How do we think about new reporting standards? So those are the two areas. But if I look at all the clients we have, some of them come from very different types of departments. So someone who manages facilities all the way through to different chief levels, right? So different C titles. So it varies across the firm because climate has come from top down usually. Like the, like the CEO of the board say, we must have a look at that. It percolates down. But people who manage operational assets, like um, operations managers, they're also looking at this because they're seeing the disruption. So um, in Germany, for instance, um, that, that that initial um, demand curve came from people who had their facilities flooded last year in Germany. So different um, People who have experienced something um, in different departments are, are the ones who are normally on the ground operating those assets. They're asking those questions. We're also seeing strategy departments who say, we're thinking about this M&A, we're thinking about location planning. How should we think about that from the lens of climate risk? Because the banks, the insurance companies, the planners, the boards, the shareholders are all asking about, am I climate aligning my future investment growth? in ways that I can now do that I couldn't do before, for instance, right? Because everything that's been built has been built in the absence of climate intelligence, but now we can we can be a lot smarter. We can be a lot more intentional about where do we put factories? How do we build them, right? Um, how do we think about different locations? Um, and how do we optimize our different supply chains, as well as helping the assets that they have built to become a lot more adaptive, a lot more resilient to some of the physical realities that they will face? Mm. Got it. I'd love to cover a bit more on kind of the actual data that goes into assessing the climate risks. And, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, using mathematical models and science-based uh, science um, uh, uh, predictions, uh, etc. What I'm wondering as well is, is, do you find there is already really good standards to follow or that make, for example, the estimations I'm getting through Savest comparable with others? Um, 
Or is there like a need uh, as well to kind of standardize climate risk assessment more across different solutions and approaches? How, how are you thinking about that and what standards do you use with Celeste? Um, I would break that down to say if you're measuring carbon. So if you think about the long tail of um, climate intelligence, there's three, actually there's four main components for us. One is just carbon management. How do I measure carbon? So there are some great protocols that are already well established, such as the GHT protocol. So there is a strong methodology for understanding and tracking and following that. Um, and that has some implications for pricing and how do we price carbon, et cetera. Then there's a whole cluster around physical risks. Um, and that's it's a lot more variable, Michael. So there's no real technical standards and no certification body for that. So, you know, we this is why you have to do lots of testing and back testing and benchmarking. Um, to say, am I within the realms of possibility? Because you have to give plausible scenarios so people can make low, low regret decisions. Then there's a whole new area of natural capital quantification. And then again, that is quite complicated, but there are some emerging standards around natural capital accounting. Um, and then what else do we have? Then we have the transition risk, which is, to be honest, there aren't any standards because a lot of that is scenario planning. Um, what's our view on forward carbon price? What's our view on the energy mix? What's our view on en energy regulation, for instance? What's our view on new technology? That's a lot more scenario based. And so you have to come up with plausible scenarios so your clients can understand those. So in many ways, <clears throat> it's a sector that will probably create more standards going forward. But I wouldn't say there's unified standard across the board yet. I think that's what the markets will be asking for next. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and um, what I'm wondering is, what are you usually um, replacing? What solutions are, you know, are people coming up with manual ways of trying to get as close to, as possible to the solution you're offering them? Or are they not using anything? They just feel the regulatory pressure to start doing something? Um, again, I, I would say it's very variable. I think there has been a cottage industry around climate or climate resilience planning, environmental modeling for years and years and years, but it's a long tail of thousands of fragmented players. Um, I, I think the market has fundamentally shifted in the last five or six years. Like, uh, I think we're seeing a lot more structure and that's coming because, you know, the sort of Yeah, volatility has fundamentally changed. New technology has allowed us to do more with the data that we do have, for instance. So we can look at more assets over more geographies yeah, more frequently at a lower cost. That's also changed the equation of how we think about modeling risk, for instance. So, so also computing costs has come down massively. Um, algorithmic design has fundamentally changed as well. Um, But I think um, so all that is fed into a new emerging market structure and uh, that's allowed people to measure carbon, measure physical risk, think about transition risk, think about even natural capital um, inclusion. So I would say all that is relatively new. Um, but again, I think there's no real market structure that's really developed um, at the moment. And I think that's still in flux. Got it. And and then give us an idea of the data sets you're actually using. What's the type of data that goes into Sylvest um, uh, to assess these uh, yeah, multivariate multivariate risks? Um, so this first of all, we, we only use peer-reviewed science. Um, first and foremost, peer-reviewed science and the underlying data sets are fairly important to us because 
we don't want to replace um, things like fantastic modeling platforms like the um, IPCC, for instance, right? We want to be able to use established, credible science. We want to be able to take it down to the asset level across multiple different hazards. So everything from atmospheric models to fire models to flooding models. We look at the underlying physics. We need to be able to understand the dynamics because through our modeling frameworks, we want to represent as much of the physical world in our modeling framework as possible so that when we give you those predictions, when we look at your assets, we are reflecting as much of the physical world as possible, right? Um, as opposed to what have been great individual models like flooding models or fire models, for instance, because they don't tell the whole story. You may, you may miss some of the signals. I mean, there's obviously very famous cases like Fukushima, for instance, or the um, heat dome last year in the States. Looking at individual models and not combining the different branches of physics together doesn't allow you to have any, as much predictive power as you need because climate is also getting played out in very niche ways, novel ways. So in many ways, you need to understand the interactions between the variables, not just the variables by themselves. And that just requires a different branch of, if you like, you know, maths, machine learning and physics to come together in new and novel ways. Now, luckily, we have the tools. We have that. We, we sort of have the algorithms to do that. And we have the data sets for the first time to do that. Hi, it's Michael here. Uh, I want to interrupt this episode briefly to make you aware of two exciting things that are going on here at Impact Hustlers. First of all, if you are a founder solving social and environmental problems and you're looking to connect to like-minded founders like yourself, you're looking to learn from what some of the most experienced entrepreneurs, experts, and investors in the world, and you want some support in actually fundraising for your startup, we've built the Impact Hustlers community. We are now about 100 entrepreneurs and founders, and we're growing every month uh, with more founders from all over the world joining us. And we're really here to support each other. Um, and our goal is to build the most supportive ecosystem for impact-driven founders. So if you're a founder, head to impacthustlers.com slash community to learn more. And if you're not a founder, but you want to work for impact-driven companies, we have also recently launched something really exciting for you. Uh, and that is the Impact Hustlers Talent Collective. This is a group of some of the most ambitious and talented individuals in the world that want to use their talent to make a difference in the world and work for some of the most innovative, impact-driven companies. If you're keen to join the Talent Collective, this is all free of charge, obviously. Uh, you can and submit your application to the Talent Collective on impacthustlers.com slash jobs. And what will happen as a result is that companies will start approaching you through our Talent Collective and share job opportunities with you. We'll also share our weekly jobs update with you where you see relevant jobs in the field of impact, including from all the previous podcast guests. So you will actually uh, see opportunities um, from companies that have been covered here on the show and also companies that are members of our Impact Hustlers community. So go to impacthustlers.com slash jobs if you're looking for a job or if you're a founder and need some support go to impacthustlers.com slash community. Okay, let's get back to the episode now. Hmm. Uh, it seems like we're still some steps away from companies adapting climate risk assessment at scale, especially maybe those outside of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure like certain assets and investor, uh, investors, et cetera, are, are thinking about this more than, than certain other companies. 
But what do you think are the biggest hurdles for, uh, you know, a, a lot of companies in the economy actually adapting this? What are like the biggest struggles? Are there regulatory challenges? Is it just basically organizational challenge within those companies? Is it a challenge of priority? What are kind of the factors that um, are hurdles for us to overcome before we get to a scalable way of doing this? So I, I think that some of the biggest challenges are, if, in fact, the multivariable. There, there are challenges of just technical skill, being able to understand climate models across multiple hazards. You would only do that if you're really looking at hazard-specific um, assets, if you're going to build a, 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 um, a bridge or, 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 a, or a wind factory, for instance, right? You would then definitely do some specialist modeling. But in terms of mainstreaming climate for all of your corporate decisions for, you know, how do we plan M&A growth? How do we climate align? How do we decarbonize? A lot of that narrative has really come about in the last five or six years. That's been driven by market trends. Um, and that one of the big market trends is just disclosure. There's been a greater recognition that particularly from markets, particularly capital markets, that there is risk. There is in inherent risk. And that risk now needs to be measured, modeled, amplified and made public. So actually, many of these um, disclosure laws are actually architected by central banks and not governments because they have a better and deeper understanding of risk and what are the implications for securities, for pensions, for savings um, over time. So I think structurally the market has enterprises are beginning to understand there is a both a regulatory push, but there's also a push to build a different type of enterprise, which is more aligned to the econ uh, climate. So. How do I climate align my growth, my assets, my future M&As? Because my employees, my customers, my stakeholders, they all want me to operate differently as an enterprise. So how do I, how do I start incorporating climate intelligence into, into all of my decisions? Because not only is there a radical transparency push, there's also a push from customers and stakeholders, which is really – so there's multiple pressure points, but they're all forming together to say – I can't operate the way that I've operated in the last 30, 40 years. Um, nature's changed. Climate's fighting back. Disclosure's changed. And my customers are asking for something else. So all those combined create some very powerful um, change mechanisms for companies to start incorporating climate assessments. Got it. Um, let's move a bit to your entrepreneurial journey. We covered it very, very briefly in the beginning. Um, but you've yeah, you founded multiple companies. You have quite... Uh, quite a bit of experience and uh, you know with any entrepreneur I talk to I'm always keen to understand some of the war stories and hardest lessons learned and the difficult bits um, in your in your journey especially to help um, uh, early stage founders listening to this learn from your mistakes that you may have made in the past and uh, lessons learned so what do you say over the years uh, obviously running Sebest but even before that has been like the hardest lesson that you had to learn as a founder? Is there anything that jumps out for you? Um. <laughs> I think that company, company building is always hard. Um, and so I think you, you, you have to truly believe what it is you're doing. So if you're building mission-driven businesses where you're using business as an instrument to solve a problem, um, that's really where I focus. So you have to fundamentally uh, believe in what it is you're trying to solve. You can't just <laughs> you can't just wake up one day and say, "Well, I've decided to go and solve the healthcare problem." Right. So you you fundamentally have to believe it. You have to have a lot of conviction. 
I would say that that conviction needs to be high on mission, but also needs to marry with method as well, because your impact, the, the real impact you're looking to make has to be scalable. So you need method, you need skills, you need talent, right? And fundamentally, I would, another big lesson for me is really align your capital early, because it's always going to be a long journey. It's a very unpredictable journey. You don't know what's around the corner. So you need capital partners who are going to travel with you. It's not just your C-suite and your senior people. You have to think about your capital partners. Are they aligned to the mission that I'm also aligned with as well? Because there'll always be dark days. Always, always, always be dark days. So the question is, who do you want around your board when there's, when times get dark? And do they believe in the same thing that you believe? But at the end of the day, if you're going to choose a path of making your mission through business, there's also business realities. You have to build revenues. You have to you know, manage your cost. You have to raise capital. You have to go and sell a strong value proposition to your customers. So it's no different to a normal business. You may be solving a big problem, but you still need basic business principles. So this is why mission and method have to come together in equal measure um, over time. So there's lots of war stories, Michael. I mean, you know, trying to trying to build a farming business in West Africa is now... It's not for kids. It's, it's hard work, right? Totally different part of the world. Uh, it's always people. I always say in every single business, it's always going to be people. How do you manage people? How do you work in cultures that you haven't worked with before? So that was that was a big challenge going to West Africa. And how do you work with the stakeholders there, right? How do you understand their values, their principles? How do they want to work with somebody from London, for instance? So that's always going to be quite challenging. Um, uh, but, you know, but you can codify lots of your missions. So we have gone for a B Corp status. Um, we do institute um, policies in the firm around equality um, as much as we can. Um, I'm also quite a flat organization person, right? I don't, I'm not a big hierarchical person. So I want the best talent in the best swim lanes doing the best work that they possibly can, right? So Part of marrying mission and method is also reducing risks. The way you do that is don't you don't look at yesterday's corporate structures because that's not going to solve for what what it is you're trying to build, right? So you know I'm quite comfortable with um, you know 25 year olds working on big strategic problems for me alongside someone who's 30, 40, 50 years old, for instance, right? So bringing the right talent for the right problem is also you have that flexibility to do that when you're building businesses. I think I should have done that a bit earlier, particularly in the sort of previous business. All right. So um, you have to break down some of the hierarchy. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> there's no set formula. I'm not, I can't say these are the five principles you should definitely follow if you want to scale a mission-driven business because there's idiosyncrasies to every, every business, every challenge, every set of people you hire. Investors change their minds. Investors may wake up one day and said, you know what, we want you to do this. Um, and then people's own life journeys change. So you can hire some fantastic executives, but their journeys change and their like, life circumstances change. So there's always the constancy of change that you have to deal with whilst you're trying to build something big. Um, it's never easy. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I, I liked your point uh, earlier on uh, aligning what you actually deeply care about, but then also your skill set. And, you know, you have to bring all these different things together, getting the right investors to invest in it. And I've definitely made that painful experience myself when founding my first company a few years ago, which was a recruitment platform for social impact jobs. Um, and 
I was very passionate about division, but I wasn't that passionate about recruitment, uh, which isn't a great thing to do when you're a recruiter. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I mean, with, with you, I think just talking to you, I just feel like there is this passion for the overall problem you're solving, but there's also really the passion for the, you know, uh, the nitty gritty of what it actually means of making that happen, you know, like, uh, so, you know, that, that I think it's super important to bring both elements um, if you want to succeed. Yeah, one thing I would say, Michael, though, that you may be very strong on vision, but you've got to surround yourself with the right talent and, the, and you have to build the right culture, right? Because for every, I always say for every power you have, you have a corresponding um, weakness as well. So, People, the right people for the right swim lanes matter. And when you when you start building businesses, you should own up to the fact that you're not good at everything and you'll never be good at everything, right? So the question is, how quickly can you fill those gaps and recognize your own weaknesses as well, right? So I think as you grow older, you become a little less arrogant about what it is you can do and what you can't do, right? So uh, believe in the team, but build the right culture where people can thrive as well. How do you combine that uh, element of delegation, empowering people, hiring people in, and hiring people that are better than you at uh, the things that they do, um, uh, but also maintaining flat hierarchies? I think, you know, I, I assume like, you know, flat hierarchies also means that everybody can access you uh, as easy as possible. But I think you have a team of 100 plus people now. So, uh, you know, how do you reconcile this, empowering them to be independent and not need you, but then also be like, okay, you can talk to me. Like, <laughs> how does it work? I mean, I always keep open hours where anyone in the firm can access me. I mean, I have an AMA channel um, on Slack, so I get all sorts of bizarre questions, which is fine. I actually welcome all range of questions. We have anonymous slidos, so when I do talk to the firm as a whole, anyone can ask any question. People can up, up um, vote it. But as you scale, you also need to bring in some of the right structures. So we've moved to a matrix organization, uh, which has really helped. So I want, you know, market-facing people involved with some of the product decisions. For instance, I want some of the product decision people involved with how some of the science should surface some of their scientific findings. So it's it's definitely an extra headache because you have to have so many more meetings, there's so many more different voices, but the end product is just so much better. So it's worth creating that, that sort of um, organizational muscle where you can bring those different skills together. Because I think at the end of the day, for the problem you're solving – The more inter interdisciplinary skills you can pull together, the greater the chances you can actually deliver a great product, a great experience, and make the change that you're looking to make. Um, that's that's key. Mm. And you mentioned the point of investors aligning your investors. You know, you have some uh, pretty known brand name investors on board uh, uh, with you, uh, such as uh, Lower Carbon Capital. Um, Uh, I know the guys at Future Positive Capital as well, very mission-aligned uh, investors. Um, how did you go about that process, especially, let's say, if you try to package some advice for early-stage founders? You know, um, Obviously, you were in a position that you're a successful entrepreneur. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's not easy for you, but still maybe a little bit different than for a first-time founder going out. How do you get the capital you need, but also make sure you're getting the right capital, the right investors in, the right ones to support your vision and not distract you into a different direction. Uh, yeah, so I, I think when you're starting out early, um, taking little capital, try and get it from family and friends who believe in you because right now they can't see the product, they can't see the service, they can't see the end state, right? 
So if you've got the right level of passion, you will find the right investors at early stage. And there's a thriving early stage ecosystem, whether you're in Europe, you're in UK, you're, you're, you're in California. You can, in this day and age, if you're pretty passionate about a problem, you can find the right investors if you look hard enough, right? So sell them the vision because at the end of the day, when you're starting a mission-driven business, you're going to be pretty high on mission and vision. What is that? How can I carry that forward? But also, you need a plan. You need a capital plan. Like, okay, where do I want to be in one year's time, two years' time, three years' time? How much capital do I really need? And also, if you're building new categories, it's even harder because you don't know what that category actually looks like, right? You're hoping your vision is going to look like that category, but you don't know, right? So when you're building things in climate, for instance, or brand new branches of science where you don't have 50, 60,000 reference points that you can look at to say, well, I'm going to be slightly better than this company, it's even harder, Michael. And then you're trying to carry investors into something that they can't reference, right? So this is why you always know whether those early stage investors, do they believe in your conviction and your vision? Because they sure as hell don't know what the market looks like yet. Right, because the market could be five, six years out. Um, as in our case, you know, we we've been at this now for six years, um, and we've raised a fair bit of capital. But always from investors who truly believe in the vision that we put forward, even years ago, even the early vision that we put to the M investors, because we've had a couple of pivots, we've made some changes. We haven't really lost that overall vision. What is it that we want to do one day? So, I would say also one of the things that I think a lot of investors. Sorry, a lot of entrepreneurs, when they when they find investors, don't chase the highest valuation always, right? I would trade off uh, aligned investors with the highest valuation term sheets because that's a that's a rookie mistake that lots of uh, first time entrepreneurs make, right? Ask yourself, how will this person behave? Do they believe in me enough so when when days get really dark, they're gonna stand next to me, right? As opposed to, I got the best term sheet in the market, right? At the end of the day, that may or may not matter. You don't know yet, but you know that, you know, the days will get dark as we're seeing now, right? The markets are turning. What does that mean, right? What does it mean for investors? Because the investor sentiments always change as well, right? So find thematic funds if it's a theme that has a pretty strong following and there's lots of investors in that space. Thematic funds are already married to the problem because they've raised capital for that problem, right? So in the case of climate or health tech, for instance, there are enough investors with thematic understanding. So the question is, do they align to what it is that you want to build next? Um, but always manage investor expectations. Be close to your investors. Share some of the concerns you have. Share some of the market concerns you have. You want them as conversation partners as opposed to an adversarial relationship, which I think some of them, you know, some entrepreneurs that I meet is like us and them with our investors. Um, that's not going to bode well long term because you're going to have to work with your investors for many years, for many financing rounds. You're going to need them when you have to negotiate some complex clauses or when you have to diminish some of their rights to bring in new investors. Right. So having that strong relationship is is fairly key. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really, really good advice there. I think um, it's been such a range of good advice as well across the episodes we've recorded before. We've had a founder on here that's actually called off a funding round because he realized he got the wrong investors, uh, at least canceled, uh, you know, like pretty much late stage and he doesn't regret it. You know, he lost a bunch of money and it was last minute. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, these are people that you will have to deal with for, you know, uh, 10 years or so, you know, um, 
who knows how long. Um, and uh, yeah, you need that support system. Uh, what, what else are you looking for from investors? You know, I mean, there's like different philosophies of value add investors. Uh, are you really looking for, for that? Or uh, are you saying, okay, I just need somebody that just make makes space for me to do my thing and give me the money and that that's it. <laughs> uh, like, I think with any partnership, you need to you need to give and take, right? What so first of all, like some of my U.S. investors, I got because I wanted a U.S. footprint. I wanted a U.S. network. So some of their networks have now opened up fantastically. Um, also, as someone who's done this a couple of times before, I have a better pattern recognition of understanding how I want to work with those investors. Right? What advice do I want? What advice do I think I don't really need? And how, what information do I and what sort of exchange do I have with them? What's the frequency that I have with them, for instance, right? So, and different investors have different strengths and weaknesses. So I'm able to discern that. I can say, I mean, I have one investor who's very experienced. I turn to him fairly often to say, I'm thinking about this. What do you think before I formalize it at the board? So having some of the soft conversations are more important than the board conversations sometimes. So most board, most board meetings are pretty done before you get to the board meeting, right? So think about, but again, you have to have that relationship, build the social capital early with those investors, right? Um, and that includes the early investors as well, because early investors, there's a tendency for some investors, sorry, for some um, entrepreneurs to say, well, they only wrote me a small check. Well, they were there from the very beginning. So make sure that you don't diminish um, the sort of frequency of comm. So, I mean, we, we, we kind of reach out to all of our investors all the time with the same information. Obviously, the, the sort of board members have a different set of information, but you need to manage them. You need to manage them and you need to communicate with them because, again, they're mission-driven investors. They've been with you from the start because they care about what it is you're doing as well, not just because you can you can get a 5x on their money, right? It has to be more than that. Again, it depends what type of entrepreneur. And I'm talking here specifically about mission-driven as opposed to I'm just an entrepreneur. I just want the best price capital uh, from the best investors. That's it, right? Yeah, got it. Yeah, I think that's okay. But I find most guests are very mission mission driven, looking for mission aligned people and uh, missionaries and what they do. And uh, definitely got that sense from you today. So um, I got one more uh, question before we wrap up, and that's about ten years from now. Uh, you know, Sebas has been running for seven years or so. So right, six six years. Um, so if you imagine ten years from now, um, how does the world look like if Sevest succeeds or keeps succeeding? I like to say. Hmm. Um, our vision is to try and make every decision climate aligned. So every financing decisions, every enterprise decision, um, every government or local government policy decision needs to incorporate climate intelligence. And what we mean by that is this decision going to make the climate positive or negative? And is that shared with multiple parties? Because we focus heavily on open intelligence, which means I can see Michael's assets. I can see his risk. I know what his risk is. Um, he can see mine as well. So the power of open intelligence will also change some of the behaviors. If you know other people can look at your risk and your profile, how does that make you behave over time? Right. Um, because we always say that we want to take some of the game theory out of privileged information by making this inf information available to everybody so that if when people are making bad decisions or decisions that are not climate aligned, everyone should know about those. The market be able to see and know that over time as well. And I think that's important. If you think about what the world needs to do in the next 12, 15 years, 
if we want to stay within the Paris-aligned paradigm, we have to think about mass decision-making, which means you need to incorporate decision-making into every automated decision, whether you're pricing, whether you're ordering something, whether you're about to make an acquisition. Every aspect of the climate needs to be encoded in your decision architecture, right? That'll take some time. This is why this is not an overnight journey, right? Progressively now, since I started this journey, we've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of companies become subject to disclosure laws that weren't when we started the journey. But we bet early on that one day all these companies are going to have to quantify and, and disclose to capital markets what their exposure and what the impact of that climate risk is on them. So 10 years out, I want to be able to see as many decisions as possible, climate aligned on an automated basis and shared openly. So when you do make critical decisions, everybody knows what that is and everybody understands the climate consequences of that. But also, how do we make new decisions on new assets, new growth decisions, new cities, new buildings in a way that is climate aligned from day one? So how do architects use climate intelligence? How do planners use it? How do funders use it to say, I can only finance this if it matches these criteria, right? So because we can't just carry on blindly building, Michael, because we, 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 we are building up a stock of very low resilient physical assets, which are not going to withstand some of the realities that these assets are likely to see. So rather than asking the lowest cost asset, we should be asking the most resilient asset over time. How do we change that? And this is, and this is a systems change that we're looking at as well, but it all starts with individual decisions. Thank you, Iggy, so much for sharing your journey and uh, sharing what you're doing with Sylvester to be part of the solution. I uh, really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully uh, catch up with you soon. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned some valuable lessons from today's guest. I want to share two things with you. Uh, first of all, if you're a founder and you're solving a social or an environmental problem with your company, there is something that we've launched recently to support founders like you and to introduce you to more founders that are like-minded and that are solving very difficult problems in the world. Um, and that is the Impact Hustlers community. It is a community of over 100 founders that uh, solve problems like climate change, education, the crisis in healthcare and really pushing the boundaries on what's possible. And what we do as a community, we connect to each other. We run mastermind groups uh, where you can connect to other entrepreneurs and founders. We bring experienced investors, entrepreneurs and experts in to run workshops and ask me anything sessions. And you can also connect to others in our online community. Uh, and we have something for those of you that are actually fundraising. We have an investor matching tool where you get introduced to relevant investors based on the startup that you are building. But it may be the case that you're not a founder and you just want to be part of the change and you want to join some of these companies that you've learned about here at the Impact Hustlers podcast. And we've got something for you as well. We've recently launched the Impact Hustlers Talent Collective. This is a group of some of the most ambitious individuals in the world that want to make a change and an impact with their careers. And you can join the Talent Collective, obviously completely free of charge. You can apply to it and we will introduce 
introduce you on a regular basis to companies recruiting people like yourself. Uh, so you'll get access to exclusive, exclusive job opportunities uh, from uh, companies that have been on the podcast, but also beyond that. So make sure that you go to impacthustlers.com slash jobs if you're looking for jobs in the social impact space. Even if you're not actively looking right now, you should still sign up and be part of our talent collective. And if you're a founder, don't forget, go to impacthustlers.com slash community. Okay, thanks very much uh, for listening and bye. See you at the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.